Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Dr. Peter Bruckner. Dr. Bruckner is a world-renowned Australian sports medicine clinician and researcher. He is a professor of sports medicine at La Trobe University and has authored several books. This includes the textbook Bruckner and Kahn's Clinical Sports Medicine, Australia's first sports medicine nutrition book um, called Food for Sport, and his most recent book called A Fat Lot of Good. Dr. Bruckner has been the team doctor for multiple elite sports, including the Australian cricket team, Australian soccer team, Olympic team, Liverpool Football Club, and way more. Dr. Bruckner, thanks so much for coming on to today. Pleasure, Gary. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I just gave a very brief intro of your sporting background. Uh, I know you're not a newbie to the world of clinical sports medicine, are you? No, no. I've been uh, <coughs> been battling away for... 35 years or so in this uh, in this game um, <clears throat> and uh, I've seen a you know sort of a huge uh, transformation really in sports medicine in that in that time from uh, from being very much a sort of a uh, lowly uh, you know profession with, with with not much sort of uh, academic rigor or, or anything like that uh, you know back in the back in the 80s and uh, um, you know <clears throat> in the, in that time uh, the Professions developed enormously, but, and it's probably for two reasons. One is, is obviously the demands of professional sport, uh, but secondly, the, the increased amount of, of leisure and exercise that uh, the people are doing, and uh, and they're uh, they're getting injured and requiring help with with that. So there's been a bit of huge growth in that area, and, and in a number of countries now, in the UK and Australia, uh, sports uh, medicine is now recognised as a full medical specialty, you know, the equivalent of any other especially like cardiology or orthopedics or anything like that. And so, so that's been a, uh, an interesting journey over that, uh, that period of time. But, uh, yeah, it's been a great uh, – I've been very fortunate. Timing is everything in life, and I think I got my sports medicine timing pretty right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you said, there's been such a great transition with that um, speciality, and that's why I'm hoping to try and get some of that knowledge out of you today to just hear how you've transitioned in your own journey too with your knowledge that you've gained over, the, over that time. and. Uh, I think I'd like to start off with, because um, we're going to be speaking mainly about the low-carb diet for athletes and the pros and cons about it. So do you think most athletes, either recreational or elite, are eating too much sugar? Yes, you know, in a word. <laughs> I think most people uh, generally are eating too much sugar. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that's, you know, the, the average uh, uh Western, Westerner, you know, Australian, Brit, American is eating somewhere around, you know, 20 teaspoons of sugar a day, you know, which is just, uh, just crazy. Uh, the World Health Organization recommends ideally, uh, six. Um, so, you know, we're already way above that. And, and I think, uh, sugar and, and processed, uh, foods in general are, are the main reason really behind the sort of current epidemics of, uh, of obesity and, and type 2 diabetes in, in particular. And, uh, and they're, they're massive problems. They're increasing at a, at a rapid rate and, and have done for the last 30 or 40 years since we, we got obsessed about, uh, about fat 40 years ago and, uh, and forgot that, uh, it was actually sugar and, Processed uh, carbohydrates that are the problem, not uh, not fat. But uh, anyway, we're going to try and un- undo all that damage now, and uh, and try and make sure the next generation don't have the same problem. Mm-hmm. And that's why I want to get you on too, because it's to me it sounds like with our, with that knowledge of understanding the impact of too many processed refined carbohydrates has had in general well-being i I also think particularly in the athletic world that's what a lot of athletes have been told to consume a lot of over the years and we're going to get more into that detail now but i think what would be interesting for people um to just listening to this is a little bit of your background and why you became so passionate about the low carb diet well i mean i'd always been a uh you know, along with everyone else, really, been on the low-fat, you know, uh, bandwagon for the last 30 or 40 years. And um, I got to a point a few years ago, um, I'd just turned uh, 60 years of age, when, which is the age that my father had developed type 2 diabetes, and I certainly didn't want to go down that track. 
And I became aware of this sort of uh, this low carb uh, movement, or, or particularly through Tim Noakes, who, who is an old friend of mine. Um, Tim, uh, as many of your listeners would know, is a very uh, esteemed sports scientist from South Africa who's challenged a lot of orthodoxies over the years. And um, and he came out a few years ago and, and, and challenged the orthodoxy that carbohydrates were the best uh, were the best fuel for for athletes and and for people in general. And that was a big, big shock because he'd been a big proponent of carbohydrates. We'd all been, you know, the sports nutrition um, <clears throat> mantra really had been, you know, carbs, 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 really, uh, as the best fuel for uh, for both for your health and for uh, and for performance. And uh, he started, he came out and challenged that, and, and from his own experience and the experience of others, and uh, and said no, he was wrong. That uh, it was actually um, carbs that were the problem, and uh, that. Uh, the low fat uh, movement was was uh, was wrong, and um, I guess if anyone else had said it, I would have ignored it. But I've always been a big uh, admirer of, of Tim's intellect, and he he challenged previous orthodoxies and, and eventually been proven right. So it made me sort of at least sit up and take notice. And I read a book then by Gary Taubes called "Good Calories, Bad Calories," and and that was really the uh, the book that changed my life. Um, I just couldn't believe what I was reading. And Gary Tarbes is, a, is a, not a doctor, he's a journalist, science journalist, um, and he wrote this book and basically talked about, uh, you know, carbs versus fats, and, uh, but in particular sort of told the story of, of the political story, if you like, of how the sort of the low-fat movement won out over the low-carb movement way back in the sort of, you know, 60s and 70s. And that was a fascinating and, and fairly frightening story to be honest and, and it turns out that that uh, the reason that low fat movement won out had nothing to do with science but everything to do with money and, and politics and, and agriculture and the US agriculture uh, world so um, that and, and I found the book really disturbing I mean uh, you know every night I'd put it down I'd, I'd sort of think to myself no this couldn't be right you know <laughs> we couldn't have got something like this so wrong for so long you know I mean the whole of Western society has been on this sort of low car, low fat experiment for you know for forty years, and it and it's been a disaster. You know, we've just got fatter and sicker for forty years, and yet we've just you know no one's no one's thought about it, no one's challenged it. So all of a sudden, there were some uh, people saying, "Well, hang on, you know, maybe we've got something wrong." I mean, if, if you had a business, you know, that was uh, results were getting steadily worse every year for forty years, you know, surely at some stage in that forty years, you'd sort of say to yourself, "Well, hang on a minute." You know, maybe we've got something wrong here. Maybe we're doing something wrong. But yet no one seems to have challenged that, that orthodoxy. There's just been this thing, oh, they're not sticking to the diet. But the uh, the figures show that people ask, you know, people have reduced their fat intake quite considerably over time and uh, and they've maintained the exercise, if not increased exercise. So it's really not uh, not what it's uh, what it appeared to be. Anyway, I've, div- I've div- uh, digressed from my own story. Um, so I... Uh, I read this book and then that really got me hooked and, uh, and I just started reading everything I could get my hands on, books and articles and so on. And in you know, in the last six years I've probably spent, you know, two two hours a day reading stuff and, and I've read, you know, a hundred books and a couple of thousand articles and yeah. You know, I got pretty much uh, much into it. But I decided, well, you know, it was time for some research and um as, uh, as you would know, Gary, I mean, research with an N equals one is, is basically regarded as a waste of time, mm-hmm. except when the one is you, in which case it becomes very important. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so I did an N equals one uh, research project and um, went uh, on day one, got all my bloods done, my, you know, lipids and cholesterols and sugars and so on, and then went on a fairly strict low-carb, high-fat diet for uh, for three months, for 13 weeks, and and pasta, potatoes, and, uh, and uh, so on, and uh, replace that with with basically the way my, my probably my grandparents would have eaten. You know, lots of food, you know, bacon and eggs, and uh, full fat dairy, lots of cream and butter, and, uh, and so on, and plenty of green veg, and uh, uh, cut back on fruit. Just only had berries. So, um, and I uh, I started that, and, and the first thing I noticed was that uh, instead of always being hungry, I was virtually never hungry. Um, so my previous life, you know, I'd have my cereal for breakfast and then by sort of, you know, 10.30, I'd be looking at my watch saying, God, you know, it must be lunchtime soon. And uh, whereas now with uh, eating a higher-fat breakfast such as bacon and eggs or, or full-fat Greek yogurt with some, some nuts and and, uh, and berries, I was just wasn't hungry all day. And um, I went to eating two meals a day, um, enjoyed the meals, ate uh, as much as I wanted to eat, and uh, only needed to eat twice a day, so uh, that was the first thing I noticed. And then I weighed myself weekly, and it just—I uh, a kilogram a week, every single week. It was unbelievable. 
Um, so I finished up in 13 weeks. I lost 13 kilograms, um, which just uh, blew me away. I mean, I just couldn't believe it was so easy. And I was, you know, I was eating really well. I was enjoying what I was eating, and I kept losing weight. And you know, and it, it was just really bizarre because you know, obviously, the concept is you, you eat fat to lose fat, which is the exact opposite of everything we'd been taught. And that was the hardest thing, I think, just getting my head around the fact that it was okay to eat fat again. Mm. So it's been told for you know. So Years it was bad, bad, you know, and uh, you know, trim the fat off your meat and low fat milk, and low fat this and low fat that, which I'd adhere to religiously, uh, with disastrous consequences because I'd probably put on, you know, half a kilogram a, a year for 30 years, you know, just slowly um, putting on weight. And uh, I was pre diabetic, I had a fatty liver, I had a whole lot of uh, health issues, although, you know, to the outside I, and, and I sensibly seemed healthy, you know, but. Um, so then at the end of that three months, I, I redid my bloods and, and it just things had changed dramatically. Um, you know, my triglycerides, which were really high, came right down. Uh, my HDL went up. Uh, my uh, fatty liver, I'd had a fatty liver. Now, this funny condition called fatty liver where you get fatty infiltrates in your, in your liver tissue that's a precursor to, uh, to diabetes. I'd had that for 10 years. I'd, typical doctor, I'd completely ignored it in previous blood tests, but a number of blood tests had shown it. And in that 13-week period, it had, it had completely resolved. It had gone from being quite abnormal at the start to absolutely normal, low normal, in fact, in the uh, in 13 weeks, which is just amazing. Um, and against again, against everything that the medical profession teaches you. And uh, the you know the weird thing is, to get rid of a fatty liver, you need to eat fat. Well, the real thing is, you need to stop eating sugar because it's fructose that gives you the fatty liver. So uh, having cut cut out of sugar, I got rid of my fatty liver. I felt fantastic. Uh, I had so much more energy. I wasn't falling asleep in the afternoon. My exercise capacity increased. There was one negative, though. I had to get a new wardrobe because I'd lost, uh, dropped two sizes in, <laughs> in my clothes and they were all swimming on me. Um, but uh, that was a small price to pay. So really, you know, I, I, I was absolutely convinced at that, at that time. And... Um, uh, since then, I've become a passionate advocate of, uh, of this way of, of living and trying to sort of overcome the, uh, you know, the sort of uh, myths of the last thirty or forty years that that um, you know fat is the problem. Whereas, quite clearly, there, there's you know so much evidence now that it, that it's sugar, and processed foods, and uh, uh, vegetable oils—they're uh, the things that are causing our our, our epidemics of obesity and type two diabetes. It's nothing to do with. Uh, with uh, with fat, um, yes, there are good fats and bad fats, but we've had it the wrong way around. You know, mm -hmm. saturated fats, the animal fats are okay, and it's the uh, the polyunsaturated oils that are the that are problem. But um, it's very hard getting that message across, I'm afraid, Gary. But we've just got to keep uh, keep chipping away. And, yeah. uh, there are powerful people who want to maintain the status quo, obviously. Yeah. Well, as you said, you know, whenever you try something yourself that's when you i think you do a lot of learning because you you are your own um, chemistry experiment so you get to see that is a theory reality and i think that one point you mentioned there about the fatty liver disease um i i had a chance to go to the public health collaboration as you did because you were a speaker there in london recently and that was something very interesting i discovered too as you just mentioned is that we could use a fatty liver marker as a like as a precursor that you're metabolically not good and that you may be going on that path to diabetes and as you said i mean in 13 weeks you had nearly you had resolved uh, uh, something that was coming up abnormal for 10 years that's incredible yes i mean the, the figures uh tell us that a third of uh of, of adults uh in Britain and Australia have, have fatty liver disease. Most people don't know it. Uh, mm. You only find out either by a blood test or, or a liver scan. Um, but uh, it's just a silent uh, um, disease that is associated with, uh, with, with diabetes and, and it's a high incidence of people who have fatty liver eventually going on to develop uh, diabetes. And, and the common denominator there is, is probably the amount of, uh, of, of fructose and, uh, and sugar that... Uh, uh, that is being being eaten. Um, fatty liver seems to be specifically related to fructose, um, and uh, as, as most people would know, uh, fructose is is half of, uh, of of what we commonly call table sugar. It's a mixture of fructose and and glucose, um, which makes sucrose, which is uh, which is table sugar. So, um, you know, eating and there's a lot of fructose in in fruits in particular. 
Um, so, you know, sort of soft drinks and, uh, and, and fruit and fruit juices are uh, full of fructose. And uh, um, so that's the reason I th- we've got such a high uh, incidence of fatty liver. And, uh, yeah, I, to be honest, I couldn't believe the, uh, the blood results. It was just I actually had to repeat them a few weeks later because I was really very sceptical. But uh, they were absolutely normal the next time too. So uh, it's hard to believe that you could just solve a, simple, a problem like that so simply by changing your diet. And this gets me thinking too about coming back to athletes and people um, who uh, are trying to perform that, yeah, they may be eating granolas and, um, you know, low-fat yogurts and lots of fruit in the morning or something. And um, coming back to the original question, I was thinking too, do they get exposed to many sugars in, in a sense? And I'd just be interested, have you come across where athletes have um do they have the same rate as of fatty liver or they don't get fatty liver i just i don't know is there anything in that world no, do you know i think they do i think i have a real concern that we've had a generation of, of athletes who have had incredibly high uh, sugar and carbohydrate intakes you know for through their their uh, you know sports drinks and gels and, and mm. uh and, you know pasta parties and, and everything and we've been you know we've encouraged athletes to have very high carbohydrate uh intakes and um and you know which is you know certainly carbohydrates don't get me wrong carbohydrates are a very effective fuel for uh, for, for for athletes uh, there's no doubt about that but uh it's you know it's uh there's a couple of problems with with carbohydrates as a fuel one is that is as you mentioned what is the long-term effect of having very high doses of, of carbohydrates on uh on uh, insulin resistance, on fatty liver, on eventually developing diabetes and, and, and cardiovascular disease. And, uh, and I think that's a real concern uh, with, with such high doses of carbohydrate. The other problem for athletes with carbohydrate is that we have a very limited store of carbohydrate. You know, we can really only store enough carbohydrates for a couple of hours of, uh, of activity. And so, you know, that infamous wall that you hit in the marathon after about two hours is when you run out of your carbohydrate stores or your glycogen, as, uh, as we call the, uh, the storage form of carbohydrate. So you constantly have to replenish supplies, uh, which can be very challenging sometimes. You know, endurance and ultra-endurance uh, events, you always have to, to top up with, with gels and, uh, and bananas and, uh, and, and so on. So there are a couple of problems uh, as a result of, uh, of all of that. The issue with, uh, with fat as a fuel for, for athletes is, uh, is very interesting. Um, one of the advantages of fat is that, you know, unlike carbohydrate you have almost unlimited supply of fat even the skinniest person has uh, has you know more than enough fat to uh, sustain them for uh, you know long long periods of, uh, of exercise so you don't need to replenish your supplies of, uh, of fat in fact you can uh, if you're on a very you know sort of high fat low carb diet you know you don't really even need to eat before it you know I've, I've known plenty of people who run a marathon without even having breakfast um you know they're just uh, running off their, their fat supplies once your body is used to, to doing that um the negative about uh, so in other words you know well why wouldn't everyone use fat primarily as their as their fuel for uh, for athletic endeavor um because a it's probably healthier and b you've got unlimited supplies the problem with fat as a fuel is uh, at high intensity, that uh, when you uh, are exercising at a relatively high intensity, so above 60 or 70% of your O2 max, um, you, uh, you probably do need uh, some carbohydrates because the, uh, the fat is not sufficient uh, for most people to uh, provide the amount of energy that's required for high-intensity exercise. So often someone on a, on basically who's running on bats will tell you that, uh, you know, for their bike ride or whatever it might be, that they were fine, but then they, when they had to climb a hill or, or sprint, they didn't quite have that extra gear that, that they might have on carbs. So, so, what, um, so I think the situation with, uh, with fueling for uh, – for uh, athletic uh, performance, still quite uh, quite fluid. If you'll excuse the expression, I mean, it, I think we're we're going through a transition from being totally carbohydrate obsessed and carbohydrate dominant to uh, to a, a group of people saying, no, 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 that's completely wrong. You know, you should only be uh, be, be running off fat. To a sort of a hybrid model now, where uh, it really depends on the amount of exercise and the intensity of the exercise that you're doing. As, as to what is the best uh, is the best fuel, 
I would still argue that uh, primarily, you know, athletes should be on a low carb, high fat diet most of the time. Um, I think uh, a for the health reasons that we've talked about, but there are also a number of other reasons for uh, well, other advantages to reducing carbs as, as an athlete. One is uh, is recovery. Um, you do seem to uh, have a lot less uh, muscle damage. Um, so we know that uh, sugar in particular is quite a pro-inflammatory uh, substance and you get increased inflammation as a result of a, of a high sort of a sugar intake. And if you reduce that, um, it does seem to reduce the amount of muscle damage that, that occurs and even the amount of, of inflammation. You know, a lot of athletes have an inflamed, you know, Achilles tendon or something like that. I know myself, I'd always had a problem with my Achilles. And I, I remember thinking about uh, six weeks into this diet that, oh, that's funny, I haven't felt my Achilles recently. And I, I felt down and for the first time ever, it wasn't, wasn't tender. So a number of people will tell you that their, their inflammation, arthritis or whatever, feels a lot better without that sort of uh, inflammatory carbohydrates. So there's, uh, there's that aspect of, uh, of it as well as the sort of overall health benefits. Uh, plus the the unlimited amount of fuel, plus the uh, as I said the, the the reduction in inflammation, the improved uh, recovery after uh, after exercise. So there are uh, there are certainly advantages to having uh, high fat. What uh, a number of the, the sports dietitians are, are suggesting uh, now, which I think makes a lot of sense, is sort of a it's a hybrid model of, of train low, compete high. So basically, while you're training, you uh, maintain a low carbohydrate intake, and then you you encourage your your fat oxidation, so you become basically a fat fueled athlete. And uh, then on days of particularly hard training or on competition days, you top up with some carbohydrates um, probably the night before. Not a massive amount; you don't have to go crazy on the pasta party, but uh, a moderate amount of carbohydrates. Uh, on the night before on the day of exercise to give you that uh, that extra sort of burst of energy that you need. But it's uh, it's still, you know, we're, we're still unclear exactly what the best uh, regime is, but that seems to be the way endurance athletes are, uh, are going at the moment. But I think for the average recreational athlete, they're fine on, uh, on uh, low-carb, uh, high-fat diet, and you get all the health benefits as well. So I hope it makes some sense. I know it's, it's a very confusing uh, area. A lot of debate, a very fierce debate in sort of the team carbs and fat. And uh, and like most things, you know, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's this is a whole new area. As you said, the the mantra has been about the, the carb loading uh, for years for athletes. And now we're in that transition stage. And I, I like that idea of the hybrid model too and how we're trying to figure out which sports are going to benefit more from which scenario. Um so it's I, if I can jump in there, Gary. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you know the, certainly the purely endurance sport. So you know, let's put, say people doing you know crazy stuff, you know, hundred mile runs or you know Ironman triathlons and so on, which is a, never going to really require, except at the very elite level, maybe you know a, a high intensity. I think they do very well on on a low carb, high fat, high fat diet. There's no doubt about that. Um, then uh, those who are in very high intensity sports probably need need carbs. The, the interesting challenge is the, is the ones in the middle, really, who are playing, uh, you know, the various football codes or basketball or something, which has bursts of high intensity activity, uh, you know, woven into uh, basically, you know, quite a lot of endurance as well, and so on. So they're the they're the interesting group uh, that probably benefit most from this uh, from this hybrid. But I think there's a lot of individual variation as well. I think uh, you know some people seem to be fine. I mean, I know football quite a very elite footballers. Who uh, don't need any carbs at all? Who do very well uh, on, on a low carb, high fat uh, diet, and seem to still be able to um, do high intensity performance without any problems. Whereas there are others who, uh, as I mentioned before, just need that uh, that extra carbs to sort of uh, top them up on uh, on game day and so on. So I think it's a little bit of trial and error. Uh, I think it's a little bit of a matter of experimenting and seeing what's right for 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 you for each individual. And uh, and because I think generally, you know, we all have a Dependent on a whole lot of things, probably a degree of insulin resistance. Largely, we have a sort of a ideal amount of carbs we all should be be eating, 
you know, I think for the very insular resistant type 2 diabetic, pre-diabetic, metabolic syndrome, grossly obese, whatever, you know, that's probably pretty low. You know, it's uh, they would benefit from very low carb or even a ketogenic uh, diet. Whereas those who are, you know, basically insulin sensitive, pretty skinny, you know, metabolically healthy, they, uh, you know, they can certainly do, uh, you know, tolerate a, a reasonable level of carbs, probably nowhere near the sort of, you know, two or 300 grams of carbs a day that the average Westerner has. But, you know, 100, you know, 150 grams of carbs are, um, is okay for them. So we're, we're, there's really no, you know, there's no one diet for every person. There's no one amount of carbs for, for every person. It just depends on, on your metabolic health, really. And, uh, you know, if you're metabolically healthy, you can, you can cope reasonably well. But you still don't want to go too high because you'll soon be metabolically unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. And I guess that's some, is that something maybe you've, seen or I, I know that you've yeah even professor tim noakes has talked about that where you can't outrun um a bad diet in a way so in this sense what i'm talking about is that you may have been consuming x amount of carbohydrates or um, processed foods and thinking no but I, I exercise at a very high intensity but that doesn't protect you from metabolic conditions later on if you even if you keep at that same intensity does it well, that's right. I think uh, you know. I think that's a very good expression. You can't outrun a bad diet because so many people, you know, you see them feeding their face with uh, you know all sorts of junk food or beer or whatever in the night, and they say, "Oh, it's okay. I'm going for a run in the morning." Well, it's not. Uh, it's it's not that simple for two reasons. One is that the sort of the this calories in, calories out stuff is is a load of nonsense, really. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's the type of calorie that uh, that's important, you know, as much as the uh, as the amount of calorie. You know, you can't tell me that, uh, you know, order of calories of, uh, of of salmon is the same as four calories of ice cream. You know, I mean, it just doesn't work like that. Um, because the body responds differently to different nutrients. So that's uh, that's one uh, one significant uh, significant problem with uh, with that. Um, and then the other thing, as you mentioned, is the metabolic effect of, uh, of this, uh, of these, you know, uh, high calorie intake diets or high, high carbohydrate intake, uh, as well. So, uh, you know, they've got the potential to cause, uh, to cause problems. So it's, um, yeah, it's not just a matter of, I mean, exercise is important. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not, uh, not downplaying the role of exercise. Exercise, you know, has massive benefits for, uh, for people in all sorts of, uh, medical conditions, you know, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, et cetera, et cetera. It's incredibly important. I'll put it on a, on a par with diet as the two most important factors in the prevention of, uh, of chronic disease. But specifically for weight loss, it's probably not as important. Well, certainly not as important as diet. Diet is really the key to weight loss. I sort of look at it as probably 80% diet, 20% exercise. You know, that's, that's very unscientific, but that's just my gut sort of feel of the importance. But, uh, you know, exercise is important for a whole lot of other, uh, other reasons, uh, as, as well. But, uh, a diet is certainly the key to, uh, to weight loss and, and to metabolic uh, metabolic health, and uh, and we've got it wrong, and uh, you know we've got to change because we're just getting sicker and fatter, and it's not good. And uh, you know we need to need to challenge the uh, the paradigm, the existing paradigm, and, and make some changes because uh, before it's too late. You know, I mean the you know they're saying that uh, diabetes alone will bankrupt the NHS. You know at the moment, I mean it, it's just uh, such a costly disease. Uh, with so many complications of, uh, of cardiovascular and, and vascular problems and kidney problems and eye problems. And there's so many uh, problems related to, to diabetes. And we just have this epidemic of diabetes. And yet we know, you know, recently that, that it, you know, it's preventable and reversible with a, with a low-carb uh, diet. And, uh, but I mean, we just got to get that message out there. And, uh, you know, I think places like... Diabetes, you know, .uk are playing an incredibly valuable role in, uh, in educating uh, people on the on the importance of a low carb uh, diet. It just, you know, it just doesn't make any sense when you, diabetes is, is a disease of carbohydrate intolerance. So basically, it's like, you know, alcoholism. You know, you can't tolerate alcohol. Well, well, you know, this is uh, you can't tolerate uh, carbohydrate, and yet. For years, we've rec we were so obsessed with fat that we've recommended a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet for diabetics. It just does not make any sense at all. 
And then we see once we reduce it, cut down carbs to a low amount, we have dramatic improvements in, in diabetic control and even uh, reversing people's uh, type 2 diabetes. So it's, um, you know, it's so important um, that, that, uh, that we get that message across. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm also interested, have, do you think there's a difference when it comes to age too? So a sports person who is in, who's a teenager or in the early 20s, um, do they need more carbohydrates or um, and as maybe once we get into our 30s and our 40s or older that um, that's where I'm seeing like some pro athletes find that no I need to back off the carbs because I'm gaining weight or as you said inflamed and I've got this chronic pain that just won't go away um, is there any subtle difference do you think from an age point of view when it comes to yeah. performance and diet well I think indirectly because I think as you get older Especially when you're exposed to a high, uh, high sugar, in, high carbohydrate intake, you become more insulin resistant, and and as you become more insulin resistant, you, uh, the effect of, of carbohydrates are even are even worse, and, and that's when you start putting on the weight and, and so on. It's, it's amazing, Gary, how many sort of elite athletes are overweight. You know, they're obviously not grossly overweight, but they're you know they're two, three, four kilograms over their their ideal weight, uh, despite you know almost full time exercise. And uh, and that's uh, that's because of their diet. And uh, you know, when we put uh, these elite athletes on on a low carb, uh, you know, healthy fat diet, they drop two or three kilograms almost straight away uh, without losing any muscle, um, and feel fantastic and uh, and improve their power to weight ratio. You know, and so it really shows that no matter how much exercise you do, you know, you you still have to eat properly if you want to maintain a, a good weight. But I think that's uh, that's very true about uh, it's not just. Uh, uh, athletes who, who you know get worse as they get older. I, I think you know, you know, when you're sort of a teenager, generally you're pretty insulin sensitive and 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 you're fine. But over a period of time, that might be ten, twenty, thirty years, depending on the amount of of, of, uh, of carbohydrate you're exposed to, and depending on your genetics too. There's also a big genetic factor in, in all this. You gradually become more and more resistant to the effects of insulin. Therefore, you have to produce more and more insulin, and insulin is, is a fat storage hormone. So um, it's not surprising that uh, that you know as you get older, you get uh, there's a tendency to put on weight, and uh, there's a very good reason for that. Um, and as I said earlier, my concern is that elite athletes in particular are having such high carbohydrate uh, dose that they may be even more at risk of developing insulin resistance and, uh, and, and all the problems associated with that than, uh, than the average population. So, you know, I, I have a real concern about that. Mm. And, you know, we're talking about insulin um in the athletic world, a lot of people need it for muscle growth too. And so from what I understand, say after a heavy resistance training um, workout that you might eat something more carbohydrates or sugary to raise your insulin to get insulin to, to assist muscle growth. And you were talking earlier about uh, muscle recovery and how a more low-carb, uh, healthy-fat, high-fat high fat, uh, way of eating um, actually assists recovery. Is there any sort of uh, new thinking or different way that, peop- that elite athletes are eating after an event so i'm thinking footballers who've just gone really hard for a final somewhere or you know they've a semi-final and they've gone into the finals do they eat a certain way now after so that they recover faster well i think the emphasis is uh has always been largely on protein after uh you know protein shakes and so on um and uh, with probably some carbohydrates, uh, but re- relatively low levels of carbohydrate, uh, probably just to, sufficient to replenish any glycogen and, and maybe muscle glycogen that, that's used. But it depends a little bit on, on what regime you're on. I mean, if you're on a low-carb, you know, generally on a low-carb, high-fat uh, uh, program, um, you uh, you probably don't need to replenish, you know, your carbs as much after, after exercise. So... Uh, uh, and insulin was still being produced. I mean, you're not, you know, you're never on uh, on, on no insulin. Mm. Um, you certainly enough insulin there to uh, promote muscle uh, um, <coughs> muscle growth. But it's it's interesting. Resistance athletes um, have always been, you know, similar to endurance, have been sort of high high carb, high protein. But um, I think they're they're also realizing that uh, they. Uh, they hate body fat, of course. They uh, whether it's you know whether you're a bodybuilder or, or or a weightlifter or whatever, 
you know, you want to re- increase your power to weight ratio. So if you can reduce your body fat by uh, by reducing your carb intake uh, without losing muscle mass, which uh, provided you have sufficient protein, uh, you'll uh, you'll maintain your muscle mass. You're going to improve your power to weight ratio. So a lot of resistance athletes and, and those who uh, want to keep uh, you know at a low weight uh, or even gymnasts who uh, you know are obviously very concerned about their weight and their power to weight ratio, and now switch towards uh, more of a low, lower carb, uh, higher fat uh, diet. So it's, a, it's been a very interesting change. Mm. And I'd like to ask you about skin folds. So I've got a copy of your book, uh, which I managed to pick up at the conference. Uh, so anyone watching the YouTube video can see it. And in there, um, Shane Watson, the cricketer, was talking about skin folds and saying that there was a difference when he converted across to a low carb diet. Um, is that what are what are skin fold testing used for at, at an elite level? And what, how are how are they measured, the athletes in that sense? Well, skin folds are a very popular thing uh, done in, in all sort of professional sporting terms. People's skin folds are measured. There are various ways of measuring your muscle, uh, your amount of body fat, really. Um, they go from basic levels like jumping on the scales um, to uh, to very sophisticated methods with uh, with DEXA scanning and, uh, and things like that where you can uh, uh, exact measurements of, uh, of body fat and muscle and all sorts of uh, things. Um so one of the one of the uh, ways in which sort of uh, halfway between those in, in its uh, complexity, if you like, is uh, is measuring skin folds. And what they do there is that there are a number of sites around uh, around the body, standard sites that uh, that you use. You use a pair of calipers and you measure. You sort of grab the, a handful of skin with the with the lying spontaneous fat, and you measure the thickness of that. With uh, with these calipers, and then you uh, add the sum of those uh, seven or eight uh, skinfold sites, and you come up with a figure. Um, and you can there are two aspects to that. One, the figure can be compared to the average for your sport, or uh, or you know what the what the coach would like you to. You know the coach might say, "Well, we want everyone to have skinfolds under sixty or or whatever." Uh, and secondly, you can also measure it to your previous and your next uh, measurement, so to see whether you're going up or down as far as. Uh, so it's a more accurate measure of of body fat than than just jumping on the scales, um, but a less accurate uh, measure than uh, than a DEXA scan or something like that. But very popular at uh, at uh, at sporting clubs. Uh, you know, any Premier League football club would regularly people's uh, skin folds, for instance, uh, just to uh, you know to monitor their their progress monitor their training if they if their skin folds are increasing you'd be concerned as to you know are they um, you know what are they eating uh, you know it's an opportunity to sort of monitor what they're what they're doing if they're dropping skin but generally you know the, the the player will come in to pre-season maybe a little bit uh, underdone they had a good uh, good few their uh, recommended diet and then doing less exercise and um so they, uh, you know, they they might have the skin folds might be up a bit, and then you see they come down with the, the intensity of uh, of preseason training and so on. So, it's a very popular way of of monitoring your uh, your body fat levels. Yeah, and uh, as you, as Shane said, he noticed when he went low carb that it got better. That hit his skin. He was always in sort of the worst category for the cricket team, was he? Like, yeah. Some, yeah. Uh, Dan had always struggled with his, with his weight and, uh, and he, he says he was always hungry. That was part of the problem, you know, and that when he would starve himself, you know, the only way he could lose weight was to, was to starve himself. And, uh, you know, A, he struggled with energy levels. He was also grumpy and miserable and, uh, and so on. So uh, going, going low carb uh, completely transformed uh, things. He could eat whatever he liked. He's got a massive appetite, whatever he could eat, whatever he wanted to eat, and uh, within, you know, within reason. And, um, and he would still drop, uh, drop weight, and it made a big difference to his, uh, to his uh, both weight and also he, he had a lot of problems with injuries over his career. And, uh, and I think he'd be the first to say that uh, his injury problems have lessened uh, uh, since he's been on this, uh, on this diet. So, um, uh, yes, he's recently uh, you know, performed magnificently uh, in the IPL final in, uh, in India and uh, hit the highest uh, you know, score over in an IPL final at the age of 36. So uh, he must be doing something right. 
Yeah. And uh, so it sounds like a long duration sport like cricket or even in IPL for anyone in America, if they don't realize what that means, um, it's the Indian Premier League for crickets. It's a very fast form of cricket, 2020 cricket, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And so um, that's that's more yeah it's um where you're going to be smacking the ball as hard as you can or bowling really fast quite often and running around a lot um but it sounds like yeah a low carbohydrate diet you would say for for any aspiring cricketers that is a good choice for for the long term of your career for both performance on the day but yeah so that you can keep playing for as long as possible too yeah i, I think so I, i'd be advising any uh any uh, aspiring young uh, sports person in any sport really to uh, to just be uh, you know be careful about their level of carbohydrate uh, intake because I think that uh, that can be a real uh, a real issue. Obviously, we've had this tradition of, uh, of, of athletes you know being encouraged to have uh, the sports drinks and, uh, and and gels and so on, and uh, and I'm not sure that they're uh, you know, in the long term that's doing them uh, doing them a lot of good. And uh, you know I think we're we're slowly seeing a uh, a shift away from that sort of uh, way of eating, and uh, you know, I, I think uh, over the next few years we're going to see more and more emphasis on uh, on on fat and uh, fat as a fuel rather than uh, than carbohydrate. So you, so at the moment now, you're not such a fan of uh, sports drinks for different types of sports. You prefer if the athlete was drinking water or like a salt water mixture. Any any yes, preference? Yeah, I think a water. Basically, most people are fine on on just water. I think if if it's in if you're a heavy sweater or, or you're doing a lot of uh, of, of uh, exercise in, in hot weather and you're sweating a lot, you know, you probably need some uh, electrolytes, some uh, some sodium, uh, one of the electrolyte mixes maybe, um, some sodium, some potassium uh, to be replenished. Um, but uh, you know, by and large, I'm not a big fan of. Uh, of sports drinks, and um, uh, I think uh, water and or water and electrolytes are probably the best fuel for uh, for pretty much all uh, all exercise. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I'd like to find out. Um, we talked earlier about um, certain bodies that might be influencing the nutrition world, um, but it must be very prevalent in elite teams too, because a lot of athletes are sponsored. By different companies, and so are they. Um, how are they finding that? Where if they maybe want to adopt a low carbohydrate diet, but they <laughs> they're a face for a certain company, or do or do yeah. those companies also have influence over the nutrition that uh, is in the athlete's canteen? Well, I think they're certainly always you know they're always available. Those those uh, the sponsored sponsors drinks are always available. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the athletes always uh, use them. Um, they, uh, you know, they obviously, uh, you know, don't uh, don't publicise uh, that. But I think a lot of the time, uh, athletes do drink water um, rather than uh, rather than a, a sponsored uh, sports drink. And I think uh, you know that uh, happens a lot uh, behind the scenes. Um, you know, I think the uh, Sports drinks are good for shower winning coaches, uh, you know, when they uh, give them a Gatorade shower or something, but I'm not sure that they're quite as good for uh, for fueling the athletes uh, in the meantime. But, um, yeah, but <clears throat> to, be, to be fair, some of the, the, the sports drinks companies have, uh, have uh, produced lower sugar versions uh, of their uh, of their product and, and they're becoming more and more uh, more popular, those uh, reduced uh, reduced sugar ones. And I think that's going to be the, the trend in in, in both sports drinks and soft drinks that uh, that the uh, the commercial organisations uh, realise that there's demand for uh, for lower uh, or even no sugar uh, products, and um, you certainly see that with uh, you know the Coca-Colas of this world at the moment. You know, there's a, a big uh, trend away from full strength uh, Coke towards the diet Cokes, or even towards a bottle of water. So, you know, I think that's that's uh, that's a great uh, great sign that people are starting to realise that uh, excessive sugar intake is not healthy. Mm-hmm. And when we were talking about uh, with low carbohydrate diets, and we, we talked about performance and strength strength ratios. But I know when people go through the transition phase, sometimes they might be more prone to cramping. That's more in the ketogenic type of scenario. But 
is that something uh, you've also noticed with low, uh, athletes who go low carb that they have to it's um they're more pre- predisposed to cramping in the beginning and it takes a while to get over that yes i think that's uh, that's a fair comment um we certainly do see uh, have the impression that there's, there's more cramping uh, in, in in low carb i think there are two potential comments uh, with that um one is uh, is salt um when you when you don't eat any processed foods, um, you actually your salt intake is quite low um, because uh, there's just there's just no you know no salt around. Um, so uh, when you're eating uh, real food, you know sort of low carb uh, diet, you probably need to add salt to um, to your food and uh, uh, be a bit a little bit careful about your salt intake um, because it's uh, you know it's very low without uh, without processed food. So I actually you know. Liberally sprinkle salt on on my food quite a, quite a bit. I have uh, I even had uh, have a few quirky habits. I add salt to my green tea and to my bone broth and uh, things. So uh, I'm pretty keen to uh, to get my salt up. And uh, and I find also don't I do uh, I do crab. And the other is magnesium. Um, you know we uh, there's significant problems with with low magnesium. Uh, it's uh, in our soils and, uh, and so on. So uh, I think there's a potential there for uh, magnesium to be an issue. So, if people are cramping, I encourage them to increase their salt intake and to consider taking a magnesium supplement uh, for a little while till they get on on top of that problem. But yes, that is certainly one of the side effects of uh, of a low carb, uh, high fat diet uh, that some people experience. The other side effect that people talk about is is the sort of thing called keto flu. You know that when you go sort of quite low carb initially for a, maybe at some stage in the first two or three weeks you don't feel so good um, and you get sort of sort of flu-like uh, symptoms and so on. And that's something that's temporary. Uh, it passes as long as you realise that that's what's going on and just, uh, you know, get through it and uh, that passes relatively uh, relatively quickly. But it can be a little bit uh, off-putting for people. You know, they say, oh, well, this is, you know, I felt terrible on, on, on low-carb because uh, uh, once you get over that, you feel, uh, you feel fantastic. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's something to be careful of. And I guess um, coming to the end of our conversation here, I'd be interested to know what or how is this being introduced, uh, like the low carbohydrate, into elite teams? Is it more as an individual, or are the sort of the sports nutritionists or the dietitians who manage the food, like the canteen selection, are they interested in the low carbohydrate diet um, for their teams, or is it someone like yourself, as the team medical doctor, that uh, has a discussion with the sports with the sports dietitian who's managing the food choice for the athletes? That you two come together to go right. Let's try this out for for the team. Well, that's the ideal scenario. I think there's a lot of uh, variation, really. Um, uh, I think you know some of the some dietitians are still sticking to the old uh, the old mantra uh, and, and are reluctant to uh, sort of embrace this uh, this new philosophy. Um, I, I think a lot of it is driven by by the athletes themselves and also by the fitness uh, staff and sports science staff. Um, I know, for instance, there are a number of uh, of the top Premier League clubs who uh, have embraced this sort of a uh, lower carb, uh, higher fat. Uh, uh, way of way of eating, uh, and they've they've gone to that hybrid approach where you know by and large they're during the week they're they're low carb and they encourage uh, you know low carb eating, low carb high fat eating in their canteens and uh, you know for breakfast and lunch and so on. And then uh, depending on individual responses, they'll top up with some uh, you know moderate amount of carbs you know on the night before a game or something like that. So um, that's become uh, more and more part of elite sport, I think. In uh, and as I said, a number of uh, back in Australia, a number of the AFL teams have done this, and and I know in the UK a number of the uh, the, the I have uh, have a consultant's role in a couple of uh, of uh, the top UK Premier League clubs, and, and they're both uh, they're both sort of uh, low lower carb, uh, high fat eating. So I think it's uh, you know it, it's it's going to be the sort of uh, way of, of sport in the in the future. I don't. I'm certainly not suggesting that uh, that you know we ditch carbs uh, completely. They're still a very important fuel, but it's more uh, a balance, I think, between. Uh, 
you know, day-to-day uh, running off fat and then occasionally needing your carbs uh, for the high-intensity work. And that's the biggest message I'm getting um, from the, our talk today is this hybrid model of saying as a baseline, low carbohydrates is a sustainable diet and it's a good choice for long-term metabolic health. And depending on your sport and your needs and your genetics and your own personal physiology, that there'll be times when you need to do the top up, as you mentioned with the Premier League teams, the football teams. Um and that's and but then there's certain sports where you'll benefit more from just staying low low carbohydrate too. It just depends on your scenario. So um, yeah, it's been it's been fascinating to hear all of these different points. Um, I know you summed it up better. Than that, you did a great job of summing. <laughs> no, no problems. That's that's how you sum up sixty minutes in in just a, a little soundbite. <laughs> um yeah i mean to, uh, this is another monster i mean your book is is a nice thick chunk of just gr- good reading and i just want to bring it up because you know i know we've talked a lot about sports medicine and science but i, I believe like if you're an athlete this is a great book to read but just generally too if you want to take good care of your health and you're interested in the low carbohydrate diets and um you're also um you're you're doing a sugar by half campaign if you could just give a little summary of what that means yeah, that, that's a campaign we've got going in, in Australia, and and uh, with uh, under the premise that uh, that sugar is the number one enemy. I mean, it's not the only problem, but it's uh, it's it's a big part of the problem. And so we thought, well, instead of just sort of tackling everything, we we just sort of tackle the sugar at. And um, and so we've uh, started a campaign, national campaign in Australia called Sugar by Half, which is with the aim to reduce the amount of added sugar by a half. So. Uh, the average Australian uh, has somewhere, you know, 15 to 20 uh, teaspoons of sugar a day. And we want to get that down, you know, to, uh, you know, five to 10, certainly, and uh, down to the World Health uh, ideal amount of, of six. So um, we figure if we can reduce the amount of sugar in, added sugar intake by a half, it would have a massive impact on the health of, uh, of people in Australia and, 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 uh, and everywhere, really. So um, it's, uh, it's just uh, in Australia at the moment, but uh, I've actually just had an approach from someone in the, in the, in the US to, uh, to maybe expand the other uh, campaign over there, but it, it's just a philosophy anyway that uh, you know we need to reduce the amount of uh, the amount of sugar for our and metabolic health. I think is the is the important thing. But um, yeah, as you say, the, the book is, uh, is is basically that you know everything I've learnt, I guess, in the last five or six years while I've been researching uh, this. And I, I just thought I'd uh, I'd put it all down in, uh, in one place, and uh, and uh, yeah, people seem to find it uh, find it interesting and. Uh, and useful. So, I've also got a got a website, a new website, uh, fatlotofgood.com.au, um, and uh, that's that will have my sort of uh, regular blogs and whole heap of information uh, that, uh, that that's in the book and uh, and additional information to to what's in the book. So that's fatlotofgood.com.au. And uh, if anyone also wants to keep up with you other than that website, um, do you have a, a preference for a particular social media account or something that for anyone to follow you or your sh- where you share your thoughts? Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess I'm a Twitter. I, I do a little bit of stuff on Twitter. It's just at Peter Bruckner, mm. um, B-R-U-K-N-E-R. Um, and, yeah, for some reason, you know, a few people seem to follow me, so I uh, put out a few bits uh, <laughs> and pieces. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's fine. So, for people outside, if people want to get my book, Fat Lot of Good, I think uh, probably Book Depository is the best player outside Australia um, to get it. They'll uh, they'll send it with uh, with free shipping. So, uh, if you get onto the Book Depository uh, website, that's probably the way uh, the way to go. So, okay. uh, yeah, good luck with it. And I'll put a link to all of these in the show notes in the description area either um, on your episode page for anyone listening to this. Peter, I just want to say thank you again for sharing all that knowledge. I mean, uh, I've tried to take 35 years of sports medicine knowledge and just try glean some of it in the 60 minutes and there would be so much more to pull out. But I think there's so much actionable information you've already given um, athletes and just general people um, about a good way of eating for performance and muscle health. So thank you so much for sharing that. No, it's been a pleasure, Gary. Okay?